0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, July 20th. I'm Marco Werman. Thousands of Syrians flee their country as the Assad regime loses control of several border crossings. Also, the view from Norway of the shooting in Colorado, as Norway prepares to mark the first anniversary of its own shooting tragedy. And later, the story of a baby sloth in a Dutch zoo that literally can't live without its teddy bear.
1: Normally, a mother sloth has also, of course, fur. So we wanted to have something that really felt like a sloth. So we tried out several teddy bears.
2: Eyes. The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at pih.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm
0: Marco Werman. This is The World. Heavy fighting again today in the Syrian capital, Damascus. Government forces bombarded rebel positions in the city. The government says it's flushed the rebels from one neighborhood. Opposition activists describe what happened there as a massacre. Clashes and rocket fire were also reported in Homs and Aleppo. Meanwhile, the United Nations is worried about a new wave of Syrian refugees fleeing to other countries to escape the violence. As many as 30,000 may have crossed into Lebanon during the past 48 hours. At the same time, the rebel Free Syrian Army reportedly took control of several border crossings with Iraq and Turkey. We reached the BBC's Wirra Davies at the border crossing between Syria and Turkey.
3: The border itself is pretty quiet uh, and it's difficult to know exactly who's in control and that of course says something because a border crossing is one of those key installations where governments are usually the ones in control. Now we do know overnight that this border crossing was in the hands of the Free Syrian Army uh, rebel fighters had taken it, but I understand that that government soldiers have taken it back. What we're really dealing with now is an area of northern Syria where nobody is really in overall total control. Uh, What's happened is that the Syrian government has withdrawn a lot of its military units from the periphery, from the border areas, back to Damascus, to the capital and other large cities to deal with the crises in in those places. And that has left um, vacuums, uh, holes in many of the border areas which are now undefended, and the Free Syrian Army has gone in. But the government t- has responded tonight with pretty heavy artillery and shell fire. And we have spoken to some uh, refugees fleeing uh, Syria tonight who have talked about some pretty intensive shelling.
0: Mm. Tell us what you've heard.
3: One guy I spoke to said that um, quite specifically it was heavy artillery and uh, shell fire, not just small arms fire. Uh, the town they came from was being shelled from a distance. Uh, a man I spoke to, none of these people ever give you their names because they're worried about, about reprisals. But one man I spoke to said one of his neighbors had lost five members of his family, and that's why he had decided to flee with his extended family, about uh, four women, three children in in the back of a vehicle, just fleeing into Turkey. The United Nations Refugee Agency today said that hundreds of thousands of refugees have now fled Syria, 30,000 into Lebanon in the last couple of days, about 100,000 are here in Turkey, another 100,000 In Jordan and some also in in Iraq, almost every one of Syria's neighbors now is being forced to take refugees because of the ferocity of the fighting there.
0: So with the mixed kind of control of these border areas mixed between the Free Syrian Army and Syria's own army from Damascus, what's that going to do for Syrians now looking to escape?
3: That's why this border crossing itself, I think, is particularly quiet in, in comparison to other border crossings, because it's simply too dangerous for some people to make the journey. The main road, for example, between Aleppo and, and Latakia, another northern town, is considered now too dangerous to travel on because of explosive devices, attacks by, by both sides. And that is the reality of life in northern Syria at the minute. Many people are choosing to to flee, but more people are, are staying in their own homes because it's simply too dangerous to go out.
0: It wasn't that long ago that Assad's regime was increasing armed presence at the border. Is this an indication that Assad is actually losing control of the region?
3: I think so, to be honest. I, I think there are uh, parts of the country now which are uh, beginning to be beyond his control. Um, you know, but people make cons- comparisons, I think, wrongly often between the situation in Syria and Libya last year, but this is one thing that, that may be comparable. If you hark back to, to Libya, one would remember the, that much of eastern Libya opened up, allowed the opposition to base itself and to, the, to use eastern Libya as a platform to defeat the regime ultimately in Tripoli. And I think that's what the opposition would be looking to do here in Syria now, will be to establish um, positions and big geographic areas that they can claim as free Syria, if you like, and from there to, to launch their attacks against the, the, the government. Of course, the, the government is still overwhelmingly superior in a military sense here, um, even though there have been quite a lot of defections from the army. And it may take some time yet before Assad is defeated.
0: We're a Davies, we'll leave it there. Thank you.
3: Cheers, guys. Thank you.
0: The BBC's Weira Davis on a border crossing between Syria and Turkey. Another sign of the divisions in Syria is the timing of Ramadan there. That's the month when Muslims spend the daylight hours abstaining from food, drink, and tobacco. Syria's mainly Sunni opposition said it would start the fast today, Friday, along with most Sunni-led Arab nations. The Assad regime said it would begin on Saturday, when Shiite-led Iran observes the start of Ramadan. The long, hot days of summer make it especially hard to observe the Ramadan fast, especially in a place like Egypt. But it turns out the timing of the Muslim holy month suits one group of Egyptians just fine, as the world's Matthew Bell reports from the coastal city of Alexandria.
4: One of the most popular places to come for Egyptians in Alexandria, unsurprisingly, is the beach. And the whole week before Ramadan, these beaches here are packed. People tell me that It's like a concert, sort of shoulder to shoulder, because Egyptians from all over come and spend time at the beach in the sun before the fasting month of Ramadan begins. Today, the first day of Ramadan, the beaches are almost completely empty. There are some families here, and it turns out the beginning of Ramadan especially is a time when Christian families, Christians make up about 10% of Egypt's population, and this is a good time for them to come and enjoy the beach when it's not very crowded at all. A man sitting with friends, smoking a water pipe, gives his name as Michael the Christian. He's got a tattoo of St. George on his shoulder. He says it's a good day to bring families to the beach. It's mostly empty, but it's not that we don't get along with our Muslim brothers, he adds. We're all Egyptians. Another beachgoer named Rami tells me that everybody here today is Christian. He came from Cairo, about three hours away, with his wife, his father, and his two-year-old son. Rami says going to the beach at the start of Ramadan has been a tradition in their family for years. It's become something like a moment of freedom for a religious minority in Egypt, especially one that feels increasingly under pressure. Rami says the Islamic holy month can bring difficulties for Christians here. We don't fast, he says, but it's hard to find food sometimes. That's because many restaurants and markets are closed during daylight hours. Rami says the country is becoming more religious and conservative. Fifteen years ago, he says, women at the beaches in Alexandria were wearing bathing suits. Now all the women here swim in clothes that cover their arms and legs, even Christian women. Sitting a few umbrellas down the beach, wearing a polo shirt and capri pants, Salwa Fouad Aziz says, unfortunately, it's true. She's been coming to the beach here, especially during Ramadan, her whole life. People have changed, she says. People used to wear whatever they want and say whatever they want. There isn't the same freedom anymore, especially for Christians. She mentions her two sons. They're in their late 20s. She says it's hard for them to find work here, so one moved to the U.S. five months ago, and the other one is planning to follow suit. Sometimes, Aziz says... She thinks about leaving too. You won't leave for good. I love Egypt, she says. No matter what happens here, I love it. I will come and go and visit my sons abroad, but I won't just leave. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Alexandria. You heard it. Surf's up. You can also see
0: it. Matthew sent us some photos from the beaches of Alexandria. Check them out at theworld.org. Today, the Olympic torch arrived in London and in a few hours. So will the world's Alex Gallifant. Alex will be keeping us up to date on all things Olympics in the weeks to come. Alex, there have been lots of interesting Olympic-related news stories this week. Let's start with a uh, kind of disturbing story out of Libya, the kidnapping of the Libyan Olympic Committee president. What happened?
5: Right, we heard about this on Monday. It was something that that happened the night before on Sunday. The president, as you say, of Libya's Olympic Committee abducted in the streets of Tripoli by gunmen. His name is Nabil Al-Alam, and his car apparently was stopped in the street, and he was bundled into a different car and hasn't been seen since. And why would this man have been targeted? There's been no word from the people who took him, at least nothing that's been made public yet. But there's a theory that he may have been kidnapped by people loyal to the former Libyan leader, Muammar Gaddafi. You know, there's been a fair amount of score settling since the eight month civil war that led to his death in October.
0: Is there any Olympic connection?
5: Well, again, it's not clear. But another theory is that if indeed Nabil al-Alam was taken by people loyal to the memory of Gaddafi and to the memory of his Libya, then they might be trying to pressurize Olympic athletes in some way. Libya sending five athletes to the games in london and at the moment it's expected that they'll be displaying libya's red black and green tricolor flag um, this is the flag that was adopted by the current transitional government but nabil al-alam's colleagues think that the kidnappers don't want that to happen you know presumably they want the the, the old libyan flag the, the flag mm. of, of gaddafi to fly but the head of the libyan delegation has said that they won't be cowed the new flag will indeed fly in london
0: Next up, Alex, I saw this headline yesterday, and I went, you've got to be kidding. Um, A a strike by border officials in the UK just before the games begin? Really?
5: Uh, Yeah, really. Not kidding. And the theme, Marco, for the rest of our chat is outrage. Outrage. (laughs) Yep. uh, Thousands of union members in the UK have voted to strike for 24 hours next Thursday. That's just before the games begin. It's related to layoffs and, and pay freezes, things that will be familiar to many people here in the US. Unfortunately, the UN in question represents workers who do things like, oh, you know, check your passports at uh, British airports. So what's been the reaction from the British government? Well, the British Home Secretary, she's the lawmaker responsible for border security, has called the action shameful. And she and her colleagues have also been trying to discredit the strike pointing to a, a very low turnout. Only 20% of union members uh, came out to cast a ballot. Uh, and they're appealing to people's patriotism, saying, you know, this, this kind of simply isn't on ahead of the games.
0: I mean, everybody says one of the big challenges of the London Olympics uh, will be the security. How are the union leaders defending this?
5: Well, they're saying, you know, this is just the government whipping up hysteria. It's gonna be, There's going to be no disruption to the Olympics. This is 24 hours. It's before the Olympics actually takes place. But you know, if you're stuck in a line at Heathrow and, and you're not confident that you're going to get through the line anytime soon, you might you might feel differently about it. Right. Now, finally, uh, we've got this last Olympic sidebar story. It seems like it comes from the 1950s. Yeah, it actually reminded me of a of a British sketch group that would do these uh, these sort of old fashioned uh, public service announcements. You know, with with a tagline, "Women know your place," <laughs> and, and this is a story about male athletes flying first class, and female athletes flying coach class. Mm. Um, this is what's happened with some athletes, not all of them, but some from Japan and Australia when they flew to, to Europe and, and to London, specifically on their way to the Games. Japan's world champion women's soccer team had to fly in the back of the plane, but the men's team, the under-23 men's team, was up at the front in business class. All right, how do they explain that? Japan's soccer authorities said the men flew in business class because they are professionals. So there you go. All right, that sounds kind of like
0: equivocation. What about the Australians?
5: This was the basketball team for Australia. The men flew in business class, and the women sat in premium economy. So uh, not quite coach, but still a step down from the guys. A former Australian women's basketball captain has said that you know this stuff has been going on for years. So. Uh, They better sort it out, especially, as you said, since the women have been much more successful at the sport. But you, Alex,
0: you will be flying to London tonight to the Olympics, and you won't complain about sitting in coach, will you?
5: I will not complain about sitting in coach, and I will take a very, very long book to Heathrow, just in case. Have a great time, Alex, and thanks a lot. Thanks, Marco. Still ahead, a Detroit
0: musician slipped into obscurity and never knew his music was hot in South Africa on
2: PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This next story
0: about a baby sloth hugging a teddy bear is sure to lift your spirits. The pictures are incredibly cute. Check them out at theworld.org. See, the baby sloth named Sharky needs that teddy bear to survive. Oh, and wait till you hear who gave it the teddy bear in the first place. It's too cute for words. Wienerke Schro is park manager of Burger Zoo in Arnhem in the Netherlands. That's where Sharky lives. So this little sloth, Wienerke, was struggling. You had to find another way to feed it. Why does it need a teddy bear?
1: Well, it needs a teddy bear because sloths have, um, have claws and they need to hang on normally to the mother. So they grasp the mother and then it's, it's like a reflex. So they, they actually need it. So we wanted to find something that we could use for that purpose.
0: And did it not have a mother?
1: Well, it had a mother and uh, she was caring, caring very well for the, for the baby. But the problem was that after a few days, we could hear sounds that sounded like he was really hungry. And when we checked him out, he was actually dehydrated. So it's probably caused by the fact that the mother does not have enough milk. So you started shopping around looking
0: for a teddy bear. What made you think that you could substitute a teddy bear for a a real sloth mother?
1: Yeah, because the mother, normally a mother sloth has also, of course, fur, so we wanted to have something that really felt like a sloth. And, and so we tried out several teddy bears or stuffed animals because, of course, in the zoo we have shops. And we tried several things and, well, it didn't work out really well. And then finally we found the really correct one.
0: Right. So the this sloth, the little sharky, was very particular about its teddy bear. How did you uh, settle on the right teddy bear? What, what uh, did uh, sharky take a liking to finally?
1: Well, that's actually the, the funniest part of the story because he had to have milk every three hours. Of course, the keepers also had to take him home. And finally, he was with a keeper, and he has a daughter of two years old. And she came, and she saw Shaki, of course. And she said, well, I have a teddy bear, but I give him as a present to Shaki. And then, well, this was actually the right one. And we don't know why, probably because mm. it's it has the right size, probably.
0: Right. That's amazing. What happens, though, if uh, this little girl wants her teddy bear back? Is Sharky doomed?
1: No, no, no. She really likes uh, him to... Of course, she sees him on a regular basis. And, of course, it's for her, it's also... she's Even with her two years old, she's very proud of the fact that he's doing really well. Mm. And her father is caring for the sloth. So she really gave it as a present. And um, the father also said that he didn't want to give it back because, of course, he piece also on the teddy bear so right. i think in the end <laughs> finally it will be a teddy bear that will not be used again
0: so 2 months old now how is sharky doing and how long has uh, the teddy bear project been working out
1: well he's now 2 year 2 months old and he probably in the next couple of weeks he will start climbing more and more and more so be more on his own but probably like in the wild, they and, and and also in our zoo, they normally go back to the mother, of course. So he will probably have the have the teddy bear around for for a certain amount of time. And then in the end, he will uh, go out and find his way in the world.
0: Is, is Sharky still in contact with the mother uh, sloth at all, even though she doesn't have milk?
1: No, he he sometimes sees her, but it's yeah, sloths have really big claws, so it's uh, for the keepers it's not safe to to hand it over to the female. And uh, but when he gets older, he will probably be in the same enclosure as the female, and uh, and will have normal social contact to uh, to the female. But he probably will not see her as her as his mother anymore. Yeah,
0: I wonder how the mother feels about this with this inanimate interloper in in the child's cage.
1: Yeah, that's true. We'll see what she thinks about it. <laughs>
0: Well, as we said in the beginning, you can see pictures of Little Sharky at theworld.org. Wienerke Schro, park manager of Burger Zoo in Arnhem, the Netherlands. Thank you so much.
1: No
6: problem. I into back.
0: No, we're not still talking about the adorable sloth in Holland. This is about Meatloaf, the beefy operatic rocker from Texas. He's got fans around the globe. One of them has been touring the U.K. for years as a kind of Meatloaf substitute. Dean Torkington's Meatloaf Tribute Act has attracted the attention of the real Meatloaf. He's suing Torkington for $100,000 over the use of a website named Meatloaf.org. Dean Torkington turned 49 this year, and he says he's been a Meatloaf fan since he was a teenager.
7: I discovered Meatloaf when I was about like sixteen, seventeen years of age. Um, got the album about like millions of people
0: did. Bad out of hell, the blockbuster LP that established Meatloaf on the pop music scene. Torkington started his own Meatloaf tribute show more than ten years ago. He decorated his tour van with art from Meatloaf album covers, that got the rock star's attention. And
7: he saw my tour bus with all my the album covers. His album cover's on, painted on the side because the vehicle's been airbrushed. You can see it on the front page of my website, Meatloaf.org. And uh, I was read the riot act.
0: But he says what really hurt was Meatloaf's critique of his stage act.
7: He criticised my singing. He said, where's your vibrato? In a, in a drawer with your socks?
0: Ouch. Tarkington says he's stopped presenting himself as Meatloaf on stage, partly, he says, because he's taken off a few pounds.
7: I've had a terrible two years, a really bad two years. I've I've gone through a really bitter divorce. I've lost half my body weight, and I don't even look like him anymore. I don't look anything like Meatloaf anymore.
0: And he might yet settle with Meatloaf's management about the Meatloaf.org website, but Dean Torkington says he has no intention of giving up singing the songs of Meatloaf.
7: I am very, very good at what I do, and I'm I'm not going to say I'm better than Meatloaf, because that would be really pushing the limit, but I'm good at what I do. And he knows I'm good at one of day. I mean, he's singing,
2: come on.
6: Here. Yeah.
0: You can see how good Dean Tarkington is at our website, theworld.org. The London Summer Olympics get underway in just a week, but it won't be the first time London's played host to the Summer Games. That was in 1948, when Britain was struggling to emerge from the Second World War. One former Olympian remembers that food was scarce, so even athletes in training like him had to get creative.
2: My
8: dad used to give me a glass of sherry and put a fresh egg in and drink that and then eat a glass of Guinness to put, uh, get the iron content. I mean, my father knew a lot of practical things.
0: A 91-year-old Olympian remembers London's 1948 Summer Games. That's next week on The World. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a Norwegian perspective on the shooting in Colorado. This weekend, Norway marks one year since its own shooting tragedy.
9: All the whole country has sort of been gearing up to this um, day of remembrance here, and then this story comes in just as we are about to enter this very special weekend, and of course that makes that makes an impact here.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. News of the shooting in a Colorado movie theater has reverberated today all around the globe. The police chief in Aurora, Colorado, where the rampage took place, held a press conference earlier. He said a total of 71 people were hit by gunfire in the theater, 12 of them fatally. For many in other countries, the shooting is a stinging reminder of their own tragedies. Norway is about to observe the first anniversary of the killings committed by Anders Breivik. It was last summer on July 22nd that Breivik went on a bombing and shooting rampage that left 77 people dead. Fritjof Jacobsen is a journalist with VG newspaper in Oslo, Norway. He says the Colorado tragedy has been the dominant news story of the day
9: there. It's been the top story on uh, every uh, news website uh, and, on, uh, of course, on uh, the broadcasting media uh, all through today.
0: What about the uh, Colorado shootings have really affected Norwegians?
9: Well, since Columbine uh, and the shooting there, uh, stories like this, uh, of course, makes quite an impact also here. Uh, both Columbine, Virginia Tech, and then we also had like similar stories from Germany, from uh, Finland. But it's a little special this weekend in Norway because the whole of the country is preparing for the one year since July 22nd where Amish Bering-Divik had detonated a bomb in the government office and then went on to Ute Island and killed a lot of kids. So... The whole of the country has sort of been gearing up to to this days of remembrance from July 22nd last year. And then this uh, story comes in just as we are about to enter this very special weekend. And, of course, that makes an impact here.
0: Mm. Has a Colorado shooting, you think, uh, deepened the sorrow in some way for those people getting ready to commemorate a year since the Breivik shooting?
9: There are some uh, similarities here. That uh, It's very surprising. It is. Uh, it comes... Sort of out of nowhere, as far as we know, you know, this is a seems to be a, a young man that uh, has never been uh, involved with the police, and suddenly un- unleashes this uh, this violence, very surprising, very shocking on on innocent people. And this, this I think, this reminds people a lot of what, uh, what we experienced here in Norway uh, about uh, a year ago. Mm. And also, you have this now that um, uh, in some of these uh, uh, shootings or, or acts like this. Uh, People commit suicide at the end, but he was uh, taken alive. So I think also some people are thinking, well, now uh, the people in in, uh, Colorado have to go through this with the trial and and sort of try to understand what what was it that really happened. And uh, that has been quite a difficult process here in Norway. So... um it's going to be a, a difficult time for people in, in Colorado in the
0: time to come, I think. I'm curious to know, before the Breivik explosion and shooting last year, uh, how did Norwegian news consumers view similar incidents in the U.S., such as Columbine and Virginia Tech, which you mentioned earlier?
9: Well, Columbine, which I think was, uh, as, just as far as I remember, the first time where we were very shocked about this uh, sort of uh, inexplicable violence at the school. And uh, but I think, you know, being in Europe and being in a, a social democratic state country, we were like, you know, uh, well, in the United States, they have a lot of guns and, uh, you know, uh, maybe gun control and things like that were an issue here. And then uh, we experienced some uh, kind of similar uh, school shootings in uh, Finland in 2007 and then again in 2008. And I think that made the whole thing come closer to us. But uh, still, when uh, July 22nd happened uh, about a year ago, it was uh, quite a shock. We could never imagine that something like that would happen uh, in, uh, you know, safe, and, uh, small and very harmonic country like we have here. You
0: know. Mm, uh, and so I'm just wondering the, the reaction today to what happened in Colorado. I mean, after last summer's shooting tragedy in Norway, can Norwegians really still look at the United States and say, oh, it's their loose gun control laws and big gun culture there?
9: No, I have not seen uh, a coverage like this. I think after what happened here, July 22nd, I think we understand that this problem is is, uh, more complicated. It's it's deeper, it's harder to grasp. Uh, It it seems uh, just that uh, I talked with some colleagues today and I heard some people comment that uh, in our modern Western society, there seems to be a... Small group of young men that sort of fall out, uh, isolate themselves, and then uh, pop up and, and uh, do these horrible uh, violent acts where they where they kill people, and it might have been some kind of revenge motive on society or something like that. But it's it's hard to it's hard to understand.
0: If the anniversary activities were designed to help people in Norway heal, uh, how do you think the news from the U.S. is going to affect that healing process?
9: I guess this. Um, this thing that happened in Colorado, the killing fair, it it, uh, it reminds us, I think, that uh, although we sort of live in a very safe world, and also there you can have these horrible acts of violence just uh, pop up and uh, and, uh, and shock people.
0: Fritjof Jacobson writes for VG, one of Norway's main newspapers. Fritjof, thank you very much. Thank you. El Salvador has the world's second-highest murder rate, with more than 4,300 homicides last year alone. The only country with a higher rate is neighboring Honduras. The United States has poured hundreds of millions into anti-gang efforts in Central America, but nothing much seemed to change. Then a few months back, the Catholic Church stepped in to broker a truce between two gangs in El Salvador. Since then, homicide rates there dropped from an average of 14 murders a day to six. But as Ambar Espinoza reports, the culture of violence lingers.
10: Last December, I met Betty Espinoza, a relative of my mother's. She told me the story of what happened to her son. She says one of the country's most violent gangs kidnapped the boy more than a year ago, and she hasn't seen him since. Earlier this year, I felt this strong premonition.
8: I felt a strong grief. I just cried and cried. I wondered if they were doing something terrible to my son.
10: Espinosa and I drove to the place where she believes her son Franklin was kidnapped, up a mountain in eastern El Salvador. Thirteen-year-old Franklin was working at a coffee plantation not far from this desolate road. Espinosa says witnesses told her that two men abducted him. She believes her son was kidnapped because he found a cell phone that belonged to a member of the Pandilla 18 gang. The gang member told someone from a neighboring town, that boy is going to shed tears of blood. Espinosa says the police launched a search, but didn't find the boy. But she says people have seen her son in a small village not far from here. People say the gangs have already
8: tattooed him. Everyone who's kidnapped into gangs is tattooed. I've heard my son runs drugs for the gangs, begs for money, or leaves extortion notes.
10: This story is common in El Salvador, where every year thousands of children are kidnapped and recruited into gangs, But recently, the Catholic Church intervened, and the results have been dramatic. In March, the church brokered a truce between the country's two most violent gangs. Since then, homicide rates dropped by 50 percent. Good news, said El Salvador's president, Mauricio Funes, at a news conference, but it's only a first step.
1: As a
2: government, we're convinced that this truce between gang leaders does not solve the problem of delinquency in our country, but it does open an opportunity to attack the problem.
10: The problem has to be battled on many fronts, says James Rose. He's the regional gang advisor at the U.S. State Department in San Salvador. He says it's also a problem that crosses borders.
2: For example, we know that there are people in prison here and there are gang members here that are directing extortions against Salvadorans in the U.S., in our communities in the U.S., Because it's becoming more and more transnational, it requires a transnational response.
10: The international community is responding. The gangs spread criminal behavior and insecurities across borders, according to the United Nations, so the U.N. is providing counterterrorism funding for police and judicial reform, border security, and economic development. And the United States is behind a multi-million dollar pilot project to teach police in Central America how to do things like extract information from the cell phone SIM cards of gang members. Miguel Guerrero in March, U.S Under Secretary of State Maria Otero visited Lourdes Colón, one of the most violent communities in the country. She praised the program.
2: It is really an effort to understand how you gather intelligence. It's an effort to understand how it is that gang members are linking to others to extort, to carry out different crimes, to even kill each other.
10: But better police work, border security, economic development, even the truce between the gangs. It's not enough for the mother of Franklin Espinosa. I'd like to find him
8: dead or alive, to know what's happening in reality, to be sure of what's become of him. To this day, I don't know what they've done to him.
10: Espinosa says she's given up hope of ever seeing her son alive again. For The World, I'm Ambar Espinosa in El Salvador.
0: You can see pictures of Franklin and Betty Espinosa at theworld.org. Today's GeoQuiz arrives on two wheels. The Tour de France always ends on the Champs-Élysées in Paris, but that'd be too easy a quiz. And the grueling mountain stages of the Tour are over now, so we won't ask you about the Pyrenees. So here's the question. Where did today's Tour stage end? It was the 18th stage out of 20. The finish line was in the town of brive la gaillarde That'd be trop difficile, so we'll settle for the name of the region where the town is located. It's in the southwest part of France. The answer is just a sprint away. The name of the French region is Limousin, and yes, limousines are named after the region of Limousin. If you know why, tweet us at PRI The World, for extra credit today. Now, as for this year's Tour de France, we turn to one of the most enthusiastic tour followers I know. He is the BBC's Neil Curry. He's also the former executive producer of this program. So, Neil, there's a time trial tomorrow prior to the final stage into Paris on Sunday, so we're near the end. Today's stage had one moment where a dog wandered into the road causing a collision, but
11: no one had to quit. But the finish today was a dramatic one. Absolutely amazing, and another display of the strength of uh, the Sky team, you know, effectively the the British team, um, most of the riders are British, at the end of it all, Bradley Wiggins, who is wearing the yellow jersey and has been wearing the yellow jersey now for the longest period of time, he led out Mark Cavendish, uh, who is the world champion, another British rider, for a dramatic last few seconds win where Mark uh, sprinted away from a couple of riders as if they were standing still. I mean, it was mm. it was amazing to see, uh, you know, And this is in the context of a British rider never, ever, ever having won the Tour de France and so Suddenly we've got a British rider first, a British rider second, and then yet another British rider winning a sprint on the third to last day. Extraordinary. And they're all on the Sky team, is that right? Yeah, they're all on the Sky pro cycling team. Remind us what you
0: have to do as a rider to get the yellow jersey and hold on to it.
11: Well, you are essentially you are the rider that has the fastest time to that point in the race so you know you rage, race stage after stage after stage and each individual stage winner is in a sense a winner in his own right you know there's there's great jubilation and celebration on that day when that person wins that stage but you clock everybody's time cumulatively across all the days and at the moment bradley wiggins has ridden what is you know more than 3000 kilometers in a time Time, which is approximately two minutes faster, two minutes faster than Chris Froome, who is the lighter, rider who is second. Right. You know, so day by day by day, you know, the times are clocked. Now, they just came out of the big Pyrenees mountain stage. How are they doing right now? They're well and truly out of the Pyrenees now. The final Pyrenean stage was yesterday, which was uh, only one word, awesome. I mean, and the performance of Sky was absolutely extraordinary. These riders after three, more than 3,000 kilometers, you know, were pulling away and literally destroying the other riders who were near enough to be able to still compete for the yellow jersey. So Nibali, for example, the Italian, he was still in with a shout at the beginning of yesterday's stage and is noted for his, for his climbing, and it was a climbing stage yesterday, big ma- you know, Pyrenean mountains, right. but they literally just blew him away. Um, you know, through working together, um, because this is the other thing that people find it difficult to understand with cycling. C- cyclists work for each other, right? Um, you know, there's this role called the domestique, which is a rider whose role is to just work tirelessly for the other riders. So they might blow themselves out ten minutes before the end of a stage and literally, you know, practically not finish the stage. But but their purpose is to bring the leader of that team to the end of the race in as high a position as possible.
0: Now, Neil, you're, I guess we could say, an obsessive cyclist enough that you kind of created your own little fantasy tour and ran a few stages
11: that the racers are currently running. Yeah, there's a group of us who do this every year, actually. And when the map of the route of the tour is released, um, which is a good one for a GeoCruise anyway, um, (laughs) we look and we find a a section on the tour where there's kind of three or four consecutive stages. We take our bikes, we're all pretty serious, And then we ride sections, um, ideally the most difficult section, a few mountains or whatever. And then we we position ourselves in order to watch the pros going by, uh, actually at a considerably higher speed than we're riding. (laughs) You know, I mean, incidentally, I mean, just to give people some of the excitement, some of the feel of the tour. And it is amazing. You know, I was standing at a point watching the so-called Peloton, the main group going by down a hill a couple of weeks ago in Belgium. And the smell of burning rubber as they came by, you know, just as they were applying their brakes en masse. And equally, when the peloton goes by, the, the gust of wind that hits you just mm. from this massive individuals flying by is absolutely extraordinary. It's an amazing event. The BBC's Neil Curry speaking with us about this year's very exciting Tour de France.
2: Thank you so much. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, nice to do something too. for the world. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. From the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow, four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to outprofit their competitors at auction. Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Next week, a documentary called
0: Searching for Sugar Man will be in theaters around the country. It tells the amazing story of Sixto Rodriguez, a Detroit musician who recorded one album back in 1970. Rodriguez, as he's known, was soulful, had a unique voice and an outspoken songwriting style. But that album, which is called Cold Fact, didn't sell well at all. His label dropped him, and Rodriguez never got a decent taste of stardom, at least not here in America. But in South Africa, well, that's a different story. Listen to this excerpt from the documentary featuring Steven Siegerman, a record shop owner in Cape Town. In the mid-70s,
11: if you walked into a random white, liberal, middle-class household that had a turntable and a pile of pop records, and if you flipped through the records, you would always see Abbey Road
4: by The Beatles, you would always see Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel, and you would always see Cold Fact by Rodriguez. To us, it was one of the most famous
11: records of all time. The message it had was be anti establishment. And the one song's called The Anti Establishment Blues. We didn't know what the word anti establishment was until it cropped up on a Rodriguez song. And then we found out it's okay to protest against your society, to be.
4: Angry with your society.
6: Woke out this morning with a lake in my head. I splashed on my clothes as I spilled out of bed. I opened the window to listen to the news, but all I heard was the establishment's blues
0: sometimes in life you do get a second chance and Rodriguez has gotten one Rodriguez joins us from New York City um Searching for Sugar Man Rodriguez uh, the documentary is all about what happened to you give me a brief recap of what did happen to your career at one point you were regarded as one of the finest artists of your time
8: well Michael Woman, thanks for having me and uh, I was recorded for Sussex Records in in uh, 69 and 70, 70 and uh and uh I had two two album releases and uh and then it didn't go anywhere, so in like seventy three i I left the music scene and uh, I went back to work and, uh, and i went i what kind of work i did was uh hard labor uh demolition of of uh and uh renovation of buildings and homes and residents and I did that for up until like ninety
0: eight, mm, but your fans there were a few of them. Uh, they didn't know where you had gone. Some thought you had died. An unsubstantiated mm. story even developed that you had committed suicide on stage. Um, when when were you kind of rediscovered? Shall we say?
8: Sugar Sigerman, came to uh, to Detroit from New York and showed me a CD in ninety six and told me about this fan base I, quote unquote, fan base I had in uh, in South Africa, and he and and so he. Encouraged me to go there. And what, what did you
0: think when, when when he shows up and says, "By the way, you know, you got tons of fans in another part oh, of the
8: world." Well, well, to see a visual uh, exhibit, a a C D CD, uh, and it was from overseas. See, it, just alone that it was a CD in that format. It was that was wow. Here, here's my this product here. So in '98, I went there and I, I played to 5,000 seaters in, in six concerts, and so uh, yeah, it was it was an uh, epic.
0: I assume you played Sugar Man when you were in South Africa.
8: Oh, yeah. Well, that's a, a quote-unquote signature song, you know. Well, let's take so, a listen yeah.
0: to it because it is one of your best-known songs and it is the source of the film's title.
6: Sugar Man Met a false friend On a lonely dusty road it Lost my heart When I found it had turned to dead black coal silver magic ships you carry jumpers coke sweet Mary Jane sugar man you're the answer that makes my questions disappear
0: Sugar Man, one of the best-known tunes by singer Rodriguez. Now, Rodriguez, we should say that uh, the social and political context of Detroit, where you came out of uh, and that had been giving you songs, kind of mirrored in some ways the same environment in South Africa. Uh, There it was institutionalized racism, but the parallels were strong enough that when South Africans heard your music, it must have really resonated with them.
8: Well, uh, government oppression, uh, um, conscription, uh, my fan base... Our Afrikaans, and uh, I met my audience in 98, and a lot of musicians, a lot of soldiers. One particular uh, incident I like to describe is that uh, um, one soldier said, we made love to your music, we made war to your music. I describe myself uh, as a musical political, and so I have to speak to that.
0: When you were writing these songs, though, mm-hmm. your inspiration came out of a different set of uh, political circumstances. But then you go to South Africa, and it's a, your music is kind of in the context of a completely different political situation. What was that like yes. for you? Understanding well, that your music could serve two worlds, if you wish.
8: Well, the protest song is a genre of music, as I chose to as a vehicle to express some of these scenes that I've I witnessed, and also. Um, I Am a Rock by Paul Simon, uh, uh, Bob Dylan's Masters of War, Ohio, uh, Neil Young's Ohio. uh, They also also took that uh, protest to a higher degree than than I did. So these kinds of questions are still up, and and they're current. I know I belong to the old century, but I do consider myself contemporary.
0: Now, Malik Benjaloul is a filmmaker yes. who came upon your story when he was in Cape Town six years ago. I mean, if he hadn't tracked you down, we probably wouldn't be speaking with you right now, would we?
8: Uh, that's probably very true. He, Malik Benjalul is uh, pretty amazing as a self made film director. And he and a, a small crew of, of a staff uh, put this thing together. And so, yes, you're right, absolutely.
0: So you've got this great documentary about you, Searching for Sugar Man, that's out soon next week. A new recording of Mm -hmm. your best old songs also comes out as part of the soundtrack to the documentary. International news media like us are paying attention to you. What
8: does it feel like? Is it like a second life for you? Oh, very much so. It's uh, uh, quite an amazing from here to there jump.
0: Well, i got to say, perhaps the best thing of all, Rodriguez, is that this renewed attention to your music has prompted the re-release of the songs from Cold Fact as well as new recordings you've made all as part of the soundtrack to Searching for Sugar Man, and I I love the music. Rodriguez, great to meet you, and the best of luck to you.
8: Thank you, sir.
6: Was it a huntsman or a player? That made you pay the cost That now assumes relaxed positions And prostitutes your loss Were you tortured by your own thirst In those pleasures that you seek That made you Tom the Curious That makes you James the Week
0: And you can see a preview for the film at theworld.org. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend.
6: And you claim... You got something going Something you call unique But I've seen your self pity showing As the tears roll down your cheeks
2: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, the Annenberg Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International